Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hello. How are we? Oh, and you're gone. Are we doing good? Yeah? Are we? Oh, I got there's like somebody clapping back there. All right. Okay. So um, last week was a little heavy. Um, don't apologize. No. My bad. No. Um, and this week is light. So just, you know. Settle in, make yourself some popcorn, and it's, it's, a, light, it's a light day, so it's going to be, I think, great. We're talking about community, we're talking about the, the, the necessity of community, and um, how you view yourself, how you view other people. We're going to talk about uh, uh, some ancient views of, of some of the stuff he's talking about here. He does some of the same stuff he did last week, so I'm excited about it. And so let's pray, and then we'll dive into this passage. Let's pray. Father... We love you. We thank you for everything that you are doing here with us. I ask that right now, for the next however long this is, that that you would allow us to be calm and open to hear from you. I ask that you would give us knowledge, um, that we would consider knowledge a precious thing, and, and that it wouldn't end there, that you would also give us wisdom to be able to apply this knowledge uh, to our daily lives, to our relationships, to our families, to our ministries, everything. Um, I lift up those who are uh, going through heavy things, who are carrying heavy burdens right now. I ask that um, those who have brought those in here, that you would right now allow them to lay them down at your feet, to push them aside, to be able to focus on you, and just be present here uh, with their brothers and sisters um, in worship and in prayer and repentance. I ask that um, you would not allow distractions to keep us from hearing you that you keep our minds here and present. Um, and that maybe while we are focusing on you for this time, that you would give us the answers to our questions and the answers that we need and things that we need to hear. So humble us, make us like you allowed me to speak freely and um, bring to my mind all the things that I've studied this week. Um, thank you. In your name, amen. All right. Okay, here we go. We're going to start right here. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone. I'm going to stop here and and start with this because um, the recipients of this letter considered themselves Jewish. Um, They were were raised Jewish, studying the ancient scriptures. They um, went to the temple regularly. And they believe Jesus was the Messiah. Now, there's a lot wrapped up in that phrase, and we're still going to talk about some of that a little bit this morning. But 
by and large, um, they considered themselves Jewish. Most of the apostles and the disciples were Jewish, uh, with the exception of a few. So reading something like this, a living stone, you hear talk, someone talk about Jesus as a living stone, um, <clears throat> this would have a lot of meaning. This would carry a lot of weight. Um, you see, the biggest hope that the ancient Israelites had was that one day, um, and we're talking pre-temples, pre-second temple, before the temple was rebuilt, the, the, the hope that they had was that one day Yahweh would come, the one true God would come, and he would live once again in his house, in his temple. And from Jerusalem, he would rule over a peaceful, um, grace-filled, um, happy, joyous, wonderful world where needs are met, where everyone is taken care of, and where um, he is the center of everything. This was the hope that they had. This is still the hope that we have, only it's sort of different now because, um, well, for starters, let's talk about what had to happen for this to come to fruition. Uh, first off, if, if God was going to come live in a temple, they had to have a temple. And if you're going to have a temple, you have to have a lot of rocks to build this temple. And so uh, there was this thing that ancient rabbis used to say and the ancient Jewish philosophers, um, and they would write it a lot, and they would say this, if we found the right stone, we could build the temple. And so they were looking for a stone. Uh, some of them would have taken this literally. We have people today that are just like the people back then. Some um, today take some things literal and some things metaphorical. And back then, people took some things literal and some things metaphorical. Um, this statement, there were people that took it both ways. There were people that read the Old Testament prophets and they would say, well, we're looking for a rock. We're looking for the original stone of Solomon's temple and, and we're going to build. Or we're looking for a, a place, a giant maybe rock-covered ground, um, a sturdy place to build the temple. And so they believed if they found that rock, they could build the temple. Um, the truth is the majority of the people took this metaphorically because ancient Jewish words were important and each word sort of had a reason for being written and, and said the way that it was. Um, and it just so happens that the word stone is this Hebrew word, eben. Um, and it also just so happens that the word son is the word Ben. There's lots of places in scriptures where you're going to read about Ben-Oni, you're going to read about Ben-Jamin, you're going to read about Ben-Hur. Um, lots of things. It means son of and the following name. Um, and so when they read about stone, they would also take it as, okay, those, a vast majority of the Jews would say, well, this is a metaphorical idea. There's a person. There's a person who's going to come and they are going to be the one upon which everything is going to be built, that will be built. Um, and so while they did believe there would be a temple, they also believed that there would be a, a person, a Messiah, that would build all of this. They didn't necessarily believe this Messiah would be God. They were very, it was very confusing what actually happened to them. And the New Testament writers are explaining all of it to the Jewish people. Um, but it gave a whole new meaning to the idea, if we find the right stone then we can build the temple upon that stone, the cornerstone, they called it. And so the weight of that statement led lots of people to rise up and say, I am the Messiah. They literally believed they were the Messiah. And they would... Didn't happen. Um, they, would, they would say, I'm the Messiah, and they would gather disciples and followers, and they would lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. All of them were killed. Everyone who claimed to be the Messiah was killed, including Jesus. And the general thinking was, if this Messiah was killed, he wasn't the Messiah. Which is why you find the disciples, after, three days after Jesus' death, fishing. And 
doing normal things, no longer out preaching what they considered to be the gospel of Jesus because they thought their Messiah had failed. They had no idea actually what God had in store with the resurrection and then with the day of Pentecost and then with the church. And so all of this was very much a surprise to them. Now, um, so they all believed basically they were looking for a person upon which everything would be built. Um, and First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4 um, says this, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And so it would be this stone that nobody would really find a lot of meaning and purpose in, and it would be rejected, but then God's going to take this rejected thing and build something incredible out of it. This is, I, this is at the heart of the gospel, not just what happened to Jesus, but what happens to all of us. Um, God takes discarded, broken things and makes incredible uh, works of, of spiritual art out of them. And this is how God interacts with us. Now, um, when Peter says this, we have to remember um, there was a time when Peter literally walked with Jesus, not in the sense that you and I walk with Jesus. He literally walked side by side with the incarnate God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. He was one of his disciples. He walked with him. And so I imagine when Peter writes this, he's actually remembering and hearkening back to a time when he heard Jesus quote this very passage, um, because this is actually not something that he made up. This is a passage from Psalm 118. Um, and so we're going to read um, our, our, um, our, our scripture reader. Come on up. We're going we're to read um, the passage. It's kind of long. Uh, it's Jesus telling a parable about this very idea. And so here you go. All right, this is from Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so when Peter quotes this passage... He's thinking back to this. Um, And what Jesus is basically saying, if I may lay this out in plain English, take it out of parable and put it in normal fashion. um, God had entrusted his message and his mission and his people to the religious leaders of ancient Israel. Time and time again, those religious leaders had taken the message of God and turned it into a religion and had used it to oppress people over and over and over because this is what religion does. Religion is not of God. Religion is a tool used to oppress people and to make them think that they can somehow earn God's favor by doing things. And when you do this, when you pervert the message of God, it leads people into different things. Idolatry, it leads them into adultery, it leads them into all kinds of things. 
Um, and so time and time again, God would send his tenants, according to the story, uh, his prophets, to come and tell the people, and to come basically to, to, to gather the fruit, to bear the fruit. He would come and say, God wants us to do this. This is how God wants us to live. And time and time again, uh, those prophets, every one of them were either um, ignored or beaten or killed. Time and time again, this happens. And so finally, um, he basically is talking about his future here, though nobody at the time realizes it. He's saying, finally, there was a son of the king. And he says, they will respect my son. Why would they respect his son? Because the son is everything that the father is. The son's going to keep the law. The son's going to do everything exactly how even the religious elite would like them to do it. And they would look at it and they would say, well, if we just kill him, then we keep control of everything. And so he's basically telling his future. And so he says, what do you think is going to happen? What is the owner of the vineyard going to do? He's going to take everything you have away from you, kick you out into darkness, and he's going to do something different. He's going to give the power to other people, which is exactly what he says he's doing. So picture all of that. God's going to take that away from the religious elite, from the, from, from the rulers of religion, and he's going to do something different. He's, he's going to do something totally different. And then we're going to go, um, the very next verse it turns out there was people in the crowd who were the religious elite. And it says this, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left to him and went away. And so yes, they were right. He was talking about them. He was saying, pretty soon your temple's gonna be destroyed. Pretty soon your religion's gonna be done. It's gonna have no place in my world anymore. I'm gonna do something different with it. And so with this in mind, think of um, Peter chapter two, verse five, the next verse in our passage today. You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So Jesus is the living stone. He's going to be the cornerstone upon which everything is built. And he says, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to build something and it's going to be built with you guys. You are going to be living stones. Now, this isn't the first time language like this has been used in ancient Rome even. Um, <clears throat> this is the ancient city of Sparta. We all know what Sparta is because of this movie that came out several years ago. So um, if you've been living under a rock, it, is, uh, it was an ancient uh, Roman city who... It was centered around battle and warfare. Uh, boys from the age of 10 were raised up to be these soldiers and, and ruthless killers. And it was, uh, it was a really unique society in the history of, of mankind. Um, but one of the most unique things about the city is that it had no walls. Uh, people, there's, we have documents written by ancient rulers who visited the city of Sparta who, said, who talked to the commanders of the army and says, why does your city have no walls? And the Spartan commander looks at him and he says, it's, he says, the men of the city are the walls, each man a stone. And I imagine when the people hear this, each one of you, the people of God are the temple, each one of you a stone of the temple. They know exactly what is being said. We all have a purpose to play and we all collectively build the temple together. Each one of us are stones. Now, um, this leads me to a conversation that I think needs to happen. Um, it's a conversation about personal relationship with God. This is something that was stressed when I was a kid. It's, it was the centerpiece of my sort of Baptist upbringing when I was a kid. And there's a lot of people in my generation that were raised on being taught solely the most important thing in your life is your personal relationship with God. But the thing I never heard was about my communal relationship with God, with God and me and other people. Um, there was no teaching at all when I was a kid of the communal relationship with God. I think the communal relationship with God is vastly more important than the personal relationship with, uh, with God, and I'm going to lay out why over the next probably 10, 15 minutes here. Um, 
the personal relationship with God is something that lots of people in my generation grew up hearing, and we eventually, lots of us came to the conclusion that, well, people are really hard to work with. If my personal relationship with God is the most important thing to me, um, and people are really hard to work with, and we fight and we argue, and joining a church is really difficult because there's all kinds of people that you're going to disagree with and fight with, why would I ever bother joining a church? Why wouldn't I just sit at home and read the Bible and worry about my own self, and that's it? And I do talk a lot about spending time nourishing your soul and building. That was what last week's sermon was all about. But there's a huge part of this that, um, that goes awry if that is your sole focus. You might have read a lot of the books that people from my generation have been writing over the last decade about how unimportant the church is, about how they are leaving church and how church is useless and how uh, they write things about how the church, everything the church does is stolen from pagan Christianity. And, uh, and a lot of these writers are my friends. I've known them and they have a broken ecclesiology. They don't understand the purpose of gathering together with other Christians and they don't understand that a personal relationship with God keeps you from fully knowing who God is. I would argue fully that you cannot know someone apart from other people. You cannot fully know someone without community. And all of us have experienced this, and I will prove it to you. Um, have you ever had a friend who you find out is dating somebody, and your first, your first words are, oh, I have to meet them. Why do you need to meet them? Because you have a feeling that they are incapable of fully knowing who this person is without your opinion. And you know what? You're right. They are. They have maybe rose-colored glasses. Maybe they have a history of just making stupid, bad, awful decisions, dating the worst people. And you are sort of one of the people in their community who helps them make better decisions. And all of you right now have somebody in your brain. I know you do. Um, Keep it in there, all right? Um, Because... None of you actually can fully know someone apart from community as well. Um, One of the interesting things about marriage that I've experienced is that um, no matter how long you're married, no matter how long you know somebody, um, once you throw kids into the mix, you see another side of that person that you never knew existed. You are incapable of knowing an entire side of that person apart from the community of children. Um, Have you ever begun to draw close to somebody and, and, and you just really trust them and you start spilling your guts to them and you yeah, they're just, they listen, they're so great. Someone else comes up to you and says, hey, be careful with that. This person is known for this and this. Be careful. You never would have known that apart from community. Community is very, very important. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called A Grief Observed where he writes about the death of a friend of his named Charles. Uh, Charles is part of a small group of writers called the Inklings. It was, it was, it was Lewis, it was Ronald J. Ronald Tolkien. Um, not so cool now, is it? Um, and, there's, uh, and there's Charles, and Charles died. And after the death of Charles, C.S. Lewis is writing about death. He experienced a lot, of, a lot of loss in his life, and he's writing just philosophically about this idea. And he writes this. He says, In each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. So he talks about relationships as each of us are lights. We, have, we, are, we are a light, and you walk into a room and it illuminates you know, a certain side of somebody. 
Um, and the more lights you have, the more people you have around, the more you clearly see people. Um, because many people have vastly different personalities than you and are able to bring out an aspect of this person that you are incapable of knowing on your own. And so he continues, and he gets very spiritual with this, and he talks about what this means for uh, the community of heaven, and it talks about what it means being uh, in the church community. So uh, let's keep moving. Um, Oh, scary. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. He's saying the more people gather at the foot of the cross, the better we know the cross. The more people that gather around God and his community, the more we understand God and his community. Um, I would argue you, you can't fully know every attribute of God. You can't fully know God apart from knowing God in community with other people. Lots of people I know set off on their own. They get mad at somebody or something in the church, some decision that they didn't like or some person that offended them, and they launch out on their own and say, I don't need church. I can study God all by myself. The problem is maybe you go your whole life and you never need healing uh, and you're never around anyone who really experiences intense healing by God, then you don't fully understand the attributes of God's healing, do you? Maybe um, you never fully experience the attributes of God's mercy and encouragement because you never know anybody that really needs mercy. You never know anyone that really gets depressed or down. You never know anyone that really needs grace. You never know anyone who really needs forgiveness. You never really know any missionaries or apostles or prophets or anything, someone who's just really worshipful. There's attributes of God that other people can bring out that you will never really see on your own. And if you spend time in community long enough, you will see people who have a vastly different relationship with God because of the things that they have been through. And the only way you can know that attribute of God is by watching them and connecting with them to God. Community is incredibly important. You cannot fully know God without community. I would also argue you cannot fully even know yourself without community. Have you ever been confronted by somebody who says, hey, you've been treating everyone like crap lately? And you say, I didn't know that. How? You were completely baffled and unaware that you have become a terrible person. (laughs) And it's true. Maybe you have. And you just had no idea. How would you know? Nobody tells you. You can't fully know yourself apart from community. Um, and so uh, this is the temp- temple of Delphi. Now, um, this would be an ancient temple of worship where people, Romans, would gather and they would worship um, the goddess Delphi. And, and above the door of this temple would be the inscription, Know Thyself. They believed, even the ancient Romans believed things that a lot of Christians today reject, that they believed you can't fully know yourself apart from other people. That you need other people to speak into your life and tell you your flaws tell you the things, you may never know how much of a blessing you are to some people unless they tell you. Have you ever had someone come up and say, hey, what you did back there, that was incredible. That was amazing. It was so encouraging. It was a huge blessing in my life. And you're like, that? That was nothing. That was just nothing. And they're like, you have no idea. You didn't have any idea. You would never have any idea. And now you can praise God that he used you in some way that you never would have known. Um, now, so, so again, I would argue you cannot know yourself. You cannot adequately judge yourself apart from community. And you know what? I can prove it 
through the magic of science. There was a test in Beijing about, about within the last decade. Uh, they were running tests on, um, on psychology, on the human brain, and how people, specifically what happens in people's brains when they judge. Uh, when you judge yourself, when you judge other people. Um, uh, by this I mean whether or not you decide whether someone is good or bad, whether or not they're worth being your friend, whether or not um, they're trustworthy, just the ways that you judge people. And uh, so this test was called, um, if, you want, if you're interested, it's called the Neural Consequences of Religious Belief on Self-Referential Processing. Um, and so, I mean, look it up in your medical journals you all have sitting there. Um, so basically, in this test, they run tests, and, and they find how the parts of the brain people use to judge themselves and judge other people. They found something really fascinating. They found that there's two parts of your brain that, that you actually use to, um, to judge people. Um, there is the, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, in case you wanted to know. And then there's the, the dorsal uh, prefrontal cortex. And uh, this would be, we're going to call it, we're going to call it the ventral and, and, and the dorsal, for short. Okay, layman's terms. Um, and they found that when you judge yourself... You use the ventral. You use this part here. You use that to judge yourself. And you say, well, I have some struggles. I maybe have some addictions. I got this going on and this. But I, and I make some bad decisions here and there. Um, all in all, um, I'm not that bad of a person. I have a few addictions, uh, but I'm, I'm working on them. I'm getting them under control. I have, uh, you know, a, a lot of debt. I made some bad decisions, but I'm making better decisions now. So I'm all in all not that bad. But they also found that when you judge other people, you actually use the dorsal. And this is how... You can look at somebody who has the exact same flaws that you have and you can say, look at that guy. What a jerk. He's a bad tipper. He's a bad, and you literally just did the same thing. And you're like, yeah, but I'm working on it. Look at this guy. <laughs> and you can judge yourself different than everyone else judges themselves. Okay? This is what we do. Now, here's the kicker. They found something incredible. Blew my mind. Um, are you ready? Mind blown. Duct tape. Wrap it up. Um, <laughs> 25% of the 500 people that they uh, ran the tests on were, uh, were, were Christians. I don't just mean like American, like Christian. Like, like they were heavily spiritual. They were involved in church gatherings. They were serving people. They were giving. Um, they were practicing the spiritual disciplines, all of this. Um, 25% of the 500 people were Christians. And they found that those 25% of the people, almost all of them, it turns out, judge themselves and other people by the dorsal, by a different part of their brain. They didn't split it. And they were baffled by this, and they, and they did a lot, lot more research, and they came to find um, that the hypothesis that they finally came up with was that, was that when Christians judge themselves, they don't judge themselves the way that everyone else does. They tend to use what they call the Jesus reference point. In other words, they look at themselves through the eyes of Jesus. Think about that. Think about what that does. When you look at yourself through the eyes of Jesus, you're looking at yourself differently. You're looking at yourself first off the same way you look at everyone else. And this is what they were finding, that, that people who were really devout followers of Jesus were judging themselves and others on the same scale. And when you do that, you end up with something called equality. You end up with understanding and, and listening. And this changed everything. Um, there's a, um, one of the... One of the researchers at UCLA, his name is Jeff Schwartz, he actually said that this was one of the most important scientific papers published in the last decade. They were basically saying that, that the spiritual disciplines exercised in community centered on Jesus actually have the power to rewire the human brain in a way that makes us less self-referential and more aware of how God sees us. That is what community can do. 
that can change your view of yourself as well as other people. And when you look at yourself through the eyes of Jesus, it does good things and it does bad things. First off, it, it makes you realize how, just how sinful you are. Second, it makes you realize just how loved you are. And it puts you in the same playing field, level playing field as everyone else. And when you look at yourself the same way you look at everyone else, what this does to your community and your relationships is it changes all of them. Um, this is the exact sort of thing that caused the Christians to be stoned that were outcast in Rome. Um, we were considered just complete, bizarre people. Um, they, they would walk into our church gatherings and they would find... Um, men, women, and slaves all sitting together, and people of uh, the Jews, Greeks, uh, Romans, Samaritans, all sitting together, worshiping Jesus, talking about Jesus on the same level playing field. Sometimes there would be men teaching, sometimes there would be slaves teaching, sometimes there would be women teaching, and we were all just equal. And the Romans thought this was awful and terrible, and it was a destruction of all of society that they had spent... Um, centuries building up. It was how they became what they were. They thought it was incredibly destructive to society to not have a servant class, to have everyone on the same level. Um, They actually called us perverts because we were monogamous. Um, They said that we were atheists because we didn't believe in all their gods. They said all these things that just were taking the stones, casting them out. And then they eventually started persecuting us, which is who this letter was written to, persecuted Christians. And when they started persecuting us, we ran and Christianity spread through the entire world. And so the stones that they cast out actually became the cornerstone of how Christianity got here. And now, as the scriptures say in the book of Revelation, um, the earth is filled with his glory. Why? Because we were persecuted and chased down to the ends of the earth. And now the earth is filled with God's glory. People right now worshiping God. Millions of people. So, when Jesus becomes the cornerstone of your life, when he becomes the brick on which everyone else builds their life upon, it changes everything. It changes how you look at yourself. It changes how you look at other people. It changes how you look at God. We have to have community in order to fully experience all of this. Community is is vastly more important than you think it is. This is why I'm always pushing for house churches. Um, House churches are the reason that we are still here today. When our church died and we were abandoned by all the leadership in the church and it was just me and my wife and like like 20 other people and we tried to figure out the reason that we we survived was because we had two groups of 20 people gathering regularly in prayer and communion and confession and studying the the, the spiritual disciplines and scriptures. And it kept us together. Uh, as long as there are house churches, no matter what happens here, if this whole thing dies and crashes and falls apart, there will still be communities all over Tampa gathering and doing the work and carrying it on. House churches are incredibly important to us. Now, um, I'm going to go to the next thing he says, because he says, okay, so you're all individual living stones. And he says, and there's a reason that you are a stone. And there's a job you have to do. And, and, and he says this, uh, to be a holy priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So I'm going to focus on this, priesthood. Um, wh- where we get our word priesthood is today, it's, it's from the Latin phrase uh, pontifex, which means one who builds bridges and roads. Um, in the Latin, it literally means bridge builder. Uh, they still call the Pope today pontifex. He's the bridge builder. 
Um, he's supposed to be the one who builds bridges from God to people and lets people come to God. This is actually, we believe, everyone who's a follower is a follower of Jesus is part of the royal priesthood. And that sounds all crazy, but here's what this is. Each one of us are bridge builders. Each one of us are here in the temple of God. His, not the church, the world is God's temple. We learn this in Genesis. Um, and each of us is here to bring people to God, to connect people to God, to help people connect with him so their sins can be forgiven, to lay the sacrifice on the altar for their sins of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And say, look, your sins are forgiven because of this sacrifice. And so we are bridge builders. And I want to ask you, uh, one lone brick in a field, is that a bridge? Is that a road? It's nothing. It's not even useful to anybody I guess, except itself. It is ensuring that it will forever be by itself and will never be building any bridges or any roads because it's different and it's difficult and it hurts to be part of a church sometimes. Guarantee you, the longer you are here, the higher risk you run of being offended by something I say or someone else says. And I guarantee you, if you are here for as long as some of the people have been here for like 10 years, you ask them, have you ever been offended here by Tommy or by anyone else in church? Yes. Why? We are all broken. Every one of us. And God will take broken bricks, mold them and shape them and make them exactly what he wants them to be. And we we are all being built together on the cornerstone, which is Jesus. So there's a a lot of writings of uh, of Christian scholars who write about these ideas. Um, One of them, C.E.B. Cransfield, writes this. He's He's a New Testament scholar. He writes, a freelance Christian who would be a Christian but is too superior to belong to the visible church upon the earth in one of its forms, is simply a contradiction in terms. All it is. A lone Christian somewhere, all by themselves, trying to figure God out. He says it's contradiction. Lone Christian. That doesn't make any sense. If you're the body of Christ, you're, you're part of the body of Christ. Um, the great Augustine writes this. The Trinity is the only version of God that gives us an understanding of the ultimate reality that has relationship at the heart of it. Only the Christian God is a community. You are made in the image of God who is a community. How can you not exercise community? If you are made in the image of God who made community. Think about when Adam was created and put in the garden. Adam has the epitome of everything everyone is searching for. He's got peace. He never has to worry about anything. He's got riches. He's, got, he's the richest man in the world. Um, he's got everything. He's the best at every sport. All of it. Um, and he's got job to do. He's, he's giving the animals names. Um, and he's got stuff to do. Like, he's a busy guy. He's, he's, he should be fulfilled, right? No, the whole time he's doing this, he's looking. He's saying, well, where's my, where's my community? Where are they? Where's my equal? Where's the person who's like me? And you know what God says? It's not good that man should be alone. That's not just a, a literal blanket statement. That's a, that's a philosophical why we are here statement. We are here as bridge builders, as road layers, as community. We are the body of Christ. Jesus has no body on the earth but us. Not nobody, no body. Get it? Um, We are the body of Jesus. This is why we are here. We have to be coming together and praying and confessing and and asking each other about God. What have you been learning? Here's what I've been learning. And I promise you, you will hear things that you never would have got on your own. That is the importance of church, of ecclesial gatherings, of coming together to worship, of gathering throughout the midweek in house churches through doing things together of community. That is what it does. So if you're here today and, and you 
are just a loner. You need Jesus because there is, there is, you need to get close to Jesus and, and really understand exactly what he was trying to do. When he took the religion away from the religious elites and he turned it into faith and he put it on all of us and he made us the temple, he was saying, you were not meant to be alone. And, and Jesus is offering you a new way to look at yourself, at other people, and at himself, at God. And I would also argue you knew, need a new way to live. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot. A lone brick in a field will accomplish nothing. Okay? So, like I said, it's not, I don't have some big philosophical thing for you. It's pretty light today. Uh, community is really important. And so, I would like to communally exercise communion with you guys. So, our communion servers can go ahead and, uh, and um, prepare for that. Um, communion is a very important thing. It's something meant to be done together. By the way, the scriptures are meant to be read together. They were written to church communities. They were written to groups of people. And so part of the things that we do, we exercise, we do motions together to say we are one. We are one body. We are the body of Christ. And so now we take communion. There's nothing mystical that happens there in communion. It's simply, um, it's just bread and it's just, it's just uh, wine, but it's, it's symbolized of something incredibly important. It represents the body of Christ broken for us. It represents the blood of Christ spilled for us so that all of us could find reconciliation to God and each other. If you have been hurt by the church, by people in the church, that's what communion is about. Maybe you need to go and patch something up before you take communion today. If you need prayer, right to these doors on the left, there's a prayer room. Uh, We would welcome you to to go in there. There'll be people there to pray with you. Um, So let's pray and let's take communion. Father, we love you and we thank you for everything you are, everything you are doing for us. Bind us together in hope and love and affection and uh, get us to intimately know each other so that we can be there for each other when things get rough and difficult. Let us uh, together make up um, a beautiful picture of who you are. Thank you. We love you. In your name, amen.